0: All right, Romans chapter 8. I know it's been like six months, it feels like. It feels like, so we're going to... Uh, I hate I hate when that happens, because then I feel like i got to do all kinds of review, which then we can't really get any further into the study. But the key here is to make sure everybody understands it. I wanted to go back to Genesis 37 to work on the next part on, on betrayal, but I'll have to do that later. Um, always more. I, there's always more to cover than I have time to do, even though I'm here five hours a day. But um, there's... There's never enough time. But Romans chapter 8. Everyone should remember at least the basics, right? Romans chapter 8. We have been looking at how many words? Six. And we said we should have added a seventh, but the reason we didn't add the seventh was for what reason? It's not actually listed in the actual text. So we've gone with six words. What are the six words that we have been looking at now for a very long time? Number one? Foreknowledge. Number two? Predestination. Number three? called number four, justified five glorified, and next elect all right, and so we 've gone through all of this it 's amazing I still get I, I still get messages or into discussions about many of these issues, and it 's kind of like well we 've been studying it now for like six months on our study on Romans, you know you just want to say, just go listen to that, but no matter it Whenever you deal with these issues pertaining to these, these words, I, it, sometimes I start thinking, is it, and I, I hate to say this, but maybe this will make sense, and maybe I shouldn't even waste time in a sermon talking about it, but have you, and you can tell, well, maybe you've felt this, maybe you have felt this. Sometimes it feels like that there is a theology that there's two camps of theology, and I hate, to, and I know this is going to sound elitist and sound wrong, but it just feels like here's one camp of theology, and it's really complicated. It deals with definition of words, church history. It's just you could call it academic. It's difficult. It requires exegesis. It's requ- it just it's difficult, right? And then there's a theology where it's just like in their minds, they they like. You can talk about all of that stuff for twelve hours, and they just look at you with this glazed look like and they just they don 't get it they 're just like i they can 't understand it it doesn 't make any sense to them and it's like it, it, it shouldn't be that way. Does everyone understand that it shouldn't be that way, but some people feel like that this Christianity, where it 's all complicated and difficult, they just feel that that's they don't want any part of that they're like they 're opposed to that Christianity. And they want it very simple. So for them, it's like, well, you know, it's, it's like, I, I don't, I, I can't, I, see, the thing is, I guess I can't relate to the simple kind, and the people in the simple kind can't relate to the complicated kind. And I, I don't know how to bring those two worlds together, because I'm sorry if for those in the simple side, I, I, I hate to say this, and I'm not saying this simple in a way that I'm speaking down to them, but I, I have to I, it just blows my mind how you can pick up the Bible and start reading and think for two seconds there's anything simple about it, right? I mean, remember my in all of our discussions about election, predestination, where do I say all the problems begin? Genesis chapter one? How do you read that? And your mind doesn't just immediately go. I'm confused, right? How do you how do you not read Genesis one one and go? It doesn't make any sense. Why should all of your problems begin in Genesis one one? I want to just make sure this church has this down. Why should all of your problems begin in Genesis one one? Yeah, the, the verse. Yeah, one one. In the beginning, God created the heavens. Why why should that verse create all the problems? Everything in your mind. Like, everyone gets upset when you mention election or predestination. Why should Genesis 1-1... Remember this, I've, I've been talking about this for now like a year. Why should Genesis 1-1 create all the problems? Right. If God... Okay, remember, when you read Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, so that means God exists prior to, He's eternal, so you have an eternal God who creates, that means He's all powerful, right? And if you read a little further in we seem to understand that this God not only is all-powerful, but he is all-knowing. Now, just think about it. You have an all-powerful, all-knowing God creates a world. Now, stop what you're doing, grab your phone, and go look up some news articles. Is the world messed up? Okay, right? Like I mean, it may, maybe you've lived in a nice little family where nothing bad's ever happened to you, okay? The worst thing ever happened is someone ate the cereal before you got the bowl. But if you've lived in normal families, you've suffered all kinds of difficulties and tragedy. You realize life is all messed up. So then that should cause you all kinds of problems, right? Wait a minute. If God is all-powerful and all-knowing, why would he create a world that's going to be all messed up? Or you have to say, well, he didn't intend it to be that way. So you're saying the all-powerful God can't get what he intends? You see a problem? So then that questions God's power. So then you have to say, well, he didn't know. Okay. Well, then that questions God's knowledge, but how long did it take him to figure it out? Right? Like, did it, did it, I mean, by 2022, do you think he can figure out that it's not working out? Now, doesn't he have the power to fix it? Does he have the power to end it? You see, this creates problem. But But somehow in the simple, it's like it's just no problem. Just no problem at all. And so I don't need that election stuff because that doesn't make any sense. What? Okay, throw out election. It still doesn't make any sense. right? Well, see, God gave everyone a will. That fixes everything. Does it? Because he cre- created people with a will knowing that they're going to use that will against him. Therefore, they're going to spend an eternity in hell. But that makes sense in your mind. That, that's that's that. Like it doesn't... I don't understand why people don't realize all of the conflict, but it's just... Christians just convince themselves, it's so simple, it's so easy, just believe in Jesus, and I don't have a problem, and it doesn't work that way. So we've been trying to deal with all of these issues, and I just, I wish there there was a way for the people on the, I I wish there was a way for the people on the simple side to realize it's not that simple. And the minute you try to show them that it's not simple, they just like, they almost panic, like they just want to go la, 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 la. I'm not listening. They plug their ears and run away going, no, 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 no. Don't give me that complicated Christianity. It's so simple. And, it's, and then they, they'll quote a verse at you like like you've never seen this verse before. Like, look at this verse. And you're kind of like, ooh, you're right. I've never seen that one. How about all of these verses? <laughs> okay, right? <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. So the simple one somehow explains away all the difficult one. It, it It's just, it, it becomes maddening. But, I mention all of that because what subject are we dealing with now? Reprobation. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Does anyone want to deal with reprobation? No, I don't. Do you? No. But we have to. Why? Because it's a, it's a logical question. That come, what's the logical question? Okay, think about it this way. When it, comes to, when it comes to Christianity, I want you to really get this down. Christianity is a faith that clearly emphasizes the gospel being preached in order for people to become saved right so whenever someone is not saved right so let's say if we're looking at this room and there's someone in this room currently not saved right okay i I don't have emma here to use as an illustration so okay we'll use we'll use seth okay so seth is in this room and he's not saved now what's the logical question we should ask Why? Why isn't Seth saved? Now, there's a couple of options. What are our options? He hasn't heard. heard. So, ignorance. Okay? Now, some people say ignorance will let him go to heaven. Which then, of course, you know what to do. Burn all Bibles. Shut down all churches. Never preach the name of Jesus ever again because everyone will go to heaven. Which I've never understood. When people say, no, if they've never heard, they'll be saved. I'm like, then why do we tell anybody? Okay. immediately you tell someone, you condemn them. That's the worst thing. Like, I'm going to go preach the gospel so that I can condemn some people. Don't. That, that, that makes no sense. So ignorance could be an example. What could be another reason? Okay, well, now we get into the doctrine of election. All right, All right. so let's not say election. Let's do this. God. Now, I know we're not supposed to say that but somehow God is involved in it, right? I mean, God is all-powerful, God is all-knowing, so there's a good chance that he could be involved in it, right? According to the Bible, he works all things according to what? His own will. So, that, so, so God's involved in somehow. All right, what would be another reason? That Seth, for some reason, hasn't chosen to believe. Now, that either means we can say, well, he just doesn't want to, or we can say he's not smart enough to figure it out, we, we could try to come up with a lot of reasons. So, so that, that's a logical question, yes? Okay, so that's a question that people have been trying to figure out for 2,000 years in church history, and not everyone agrees on the answers, right? Okay. Some people put salvation as, and, and I know people don't like to hear this, but it's either salvation is either something God does, or it's something we do. Because if I'm the one who chooses to believe, then really who's saving whom? I'm involved in the saving of myself, right? So that, that brings up all kinds of questions. Now, if we say, okay, God elects some people to be saved, then what's the next logical question? What about those who are not saved? Is it, now, once again, we have, why are they not saved? Is it because of God? Or is it because, like, then we, get right, see, those questions are going to show up no matter which system you're involved in, right? Well, reprobation is an attempt to try to explain it, yes? Did we define what reprobation is? The doctrine of reprobation, when we understand election as God's sovereign choice of some persons to be saved, then there's a necessarily another aspect of that choice, namely, God's sovereign decision to pass over others and not to save them. The decision of God in eternity past is called reprobation. Reprobation is the, who got it in their notes, reprobation is the sovereign decision of God before creation to pass over some persons in sorrow deciding not to save them and to punish them for their sins and thereby to manifest his justice. All right? And remember, Grudem said, in many ways, the doctrine of reprobation is the most difficult of all the teaching of scripture for us to think about and to accept because it deals with such horrible and eternal consequences for human beings made in the image of God. I'm going to stop right there. I completely reject that. The most difficult teaching of the Bible is Genesis 1.1. I don't understand why people don't realize that. Genesis 1.1 makes no sense. Somebody got that, okay? And and people. Whenever I say that, I know I, even you guys look at me like I don't know if I believe that. But the minute I start asking questions about Genesis one one, none of you have any good answers. Right, because, and then this is what happens if you go, again, you go to any good university and you walk into philosophy class, oh, you believe in God. Okay, well, let me make sure I understand this. So you're all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God created a world where people are going to suffer, die, and then burn in hell. Whoa, what a great God. And then Christians are like, don't say that. Jesus is real and the Bible is true. okay And then the philosophy professor is like, that's why I don't want Christians in my class just get out because you can't think right and you get mad about that but I'm sorry that's your answer there are and and you say well I I know an apologist and he's got a good answer all their answers just really talk around it because nobody wants to address it's difficult yes so we started talking about reprobation when we start talking about reprobation that leads us to discuss what very important subject God's decrees. Remember, we started talking about God's decrees, all right? And then we, we talked about the order of decrees, yes? And we started naming some different uh, concepts, right? All right, and let's go through them, all right? Here we go. The first one we looked at was the Pelagian view, yes? The Pelagian view is what kind of a view? It's naturalistic view. Of salvation, As opposed to a supernaturalistic view. What's the, what, when we say naturalistic versus supernaturalistic, what are we saying? A naturalistic view removes God from being involved in the situation where a supernaturalistic view puts who involved? God. All right, everybody remember that? Okay. The primary issue between the naturalist and the supernaturalist may be summed up in one question. Does man save himself or does God save him? And its purity, Pelagianism affirms that all the power exerted in saving man is native to man himself. It is basically a salvation by works mentality that continues to show up in very for, various forms today. Now, as soon as I refer to someone as a Pelagian, they usually get mad at me and go, I'm not a Pelagian! I'm like, okay. Who saved you? God. Oh, then why didn't he save Seth? No, 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 no. God made it available, but I made the choice. So who saved whom? You see where this starts falling apart? Okay, but Pelagian says what? You did what? You saved yourself, okay? Pelagianism denies what? Human nature is being corrupted by sin. We've talked about Pelagianism. I don't have time to go through there. Then what's the next view? Semi-Pelagian, right? And it's only a mild, a mild improvement. It's an, and what is it? It is a naturalistic view that man's saving himself with God's help. So in semi-Pelagian, you're still saving yourself, but who helps you? Now, what would be the logical question for a semi-Pelagian? Does God help everyone? Or only helps you? And if he helps everyone, how come his help is not sufficient to get everyone saved? Everybody understand that? If God is helping, remember this is the problem I get. I get so upset with Christians who teach that when you get saved, you've got God and he will help you be a changed person. But his help is not enough to get me to be perfect. perfect. So the, the eternal God helps me live out my Christian life, but he can't get me to perfection. So there's a limit to, my, to that help. Like that, that doesn't even make any. That that just falls completely and utterly. Doesn't make any sense. Right. Well, the semi-Pelagian view has the same issue. All right, and like Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism, they were both condemned where? Way before Dort. Way way before Dort. Okay, I hope it didn't take till Dort to condemn it. Okay, that's like. Council of Orange in 529 is a good place where both are condemned. Okay, if you want both of them condemned. All right. And they adopted which view? Augustinian view. Okay, all right. Okay. Then at the Synod of Dort in 1600s, yeah, then they, they, it gets condemned again. All right, all right, here we go. Then what's, uh, so what's, uh, 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 there's the semi-Pelagian view. Then what was next? The Arminian view, all right? And basically, what is the Arminian view? It's it's an improvement of the Pelagian and Semi-Pelagian view and that it is what? Supernaturalistic, attributing the primary work of salvation to whom? To God in all points. However, it maintains that by the virtue of God's universal prevenient grace. Everybody remember we talked about prevenient grace? What's prevenient grace? It's grace of God that precedes conversion, all right? Does everybody, does everybody understand prevenient grace? Does, do, do we need to go back? Th- I mean, that we stopped everything to cover it because when I mentioned it, never, all of you were like, never heard of it, right? So did we resolve all of that, you think? Yes? Okay, I'm going to pretend that we did. Okay, I'm going to pretend because if we go back, if I, start, if I start down the road of going over prevenient grace again and I'm looking at the clock, we're never going to v- advance this. Right, So does everybody feel good about that? All right, I'll, I'll just read this, see if this helps. Arminianism maintains that by virtue of God's universal prevenient grace, all men have free will and the ability to savingly respond to God. It also maintains that predestination is based on God's divine foreknowledge, where foreknowledge is erroneously equated with foresight. Arminianism is universalistic since it is viewed God does no more for any man than he does for all. This reduces to the point where the deciding factor in salvation is man himself, which thus approaches semi-Pelagianism, where man saves himself with God's help. Reformed theologians, therefore, are rather a gray line that distinguishes Arminianism from semi-Pelagianism. All right now, please note one of the things about Arminianism that drives me crazy is like, well, God, God gives everyone a chance. Does God give everyone a chance? He gives everyone a chance. Salvation? No. Forget election. Just remove election. Believe, say election is not true. Does God give everyone a chance? It's always Americans who say, yeah, of course. It's always Americans. Okay. Um, how many people are born in countries where they never hear the name of Jesus? Did they get a chance? Yeah, so that's why most Christians do. That's exactly. They automatically go to heaven. Do they go to heaven? If you say they go to heaven, then you're telling me that we should burn the church to the ground, burn every Bible, close down every Christian podcast, every Christian radio station, every Christian television, and all Christians need to be told to shut their mouths. Because if we remove Christianity from the world, then guess what? Everyone would be saved. So why in the world would Jesus tell us to go into all the world? If I've got to go into all the world to preach, it indicates that if I don't go preach... They will not become saved because God saves people through the preaching of his word. So there are people who never have a chance because they've never heard the name of Jesus. Does anybody understand? I know, I know it's like living in America where there's a church on every corner. And you're like, well, everybody gets a chance. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it doesn't work that way. There are people born in families where they're forbidden to hear the name of Jesus, do you, you understand that? It, 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 you got to realize that. So then, then, did, did is God powerful enough to get G, the name of Jesus to them? Why doesn't He? Well. Reprobation may be an answer, maybe, okay? All right. So does everybody understand? I, I know I'm going to get 900. No, everyone gets a chance. I've heard people flip their lids when I say, and, and, and I'll point out, well, how many people, you'll get missionary agencies will always say, every year this many people die who never heard the name of Jesus, so please give me money so that I can go to the mission field. Well, why do they say that? Either they're lying, but if they're telling the truth, then that means not everyone gets a chance oh boy that's shocking this i don't understand why christians get so upset about that but like what do you think do you think like at one point in your life someone's going to come to your village in the middle of nowhere africa and, well you don't have a door okay they're gonna on your little grass hut they're gonna kick it and say i'm here to tell you about jesus it doesn't work that way does everyone understand that it, like, I, I know I'm y'all looking at me like, well, no, it has to. It just, just, that's not fair. Okay, yeah, well, you know, you know what's not fair? Is that you got told about Jesus. That's what's not fair. Because you didn't deserve it. Does anybody realize that? And I know that you're shocked by that, but you didn't deserve it. All right. Now, what's the next view? <laughs> Armadian Armradian or Armraldeism right, I'll spell it A M Y R A L D I A N Emeraldian or Emeraldism. A M Y R A L D I A N Armradilan Emeraldilan and then Armradeism is A M Y R A L D I S M everybody know this view? You can be honest. Okay, none of you have never heard of this view. All right. Emeraldian or Emeraldism. All right. Emeraldism developed historically following what? Synod, well, it's after Calvin. Synod of Dort. Emerald- Emeraldism developed historically following the Synod of Dort, and it was f- developed for what reason? Does anybody know why? It's developed to be a compromise between which two camps? Not Catholicism, Calvinism and Arminianism. Calvinism and Arminianism. Okay, all right, all right. Yeah, not not Catholicism. Calvinism and Arminianism. It was a compromise between the two camps. All right? And they were, guess what they were trying to do? They were trying to give up what was perceived to be the harshness of Calvinism. Calvinism seemed too harsh, right? So, but they didn't want to go all the way over to the Arminian camp. So they wanted to create a less harsh form of Calvinism so that it would not be so offensive or so unplea- or not pleasing to everyone. Now, you already know that's already problematic, right? All right. Let me make it very clear. You don't change the harshness of doctrine because people don't like it. That's not the way it works. Would anyone want a doctor to, use, to do that? Oh, man, this person's got cancer. That's kind of harsh. That's kind of harsh. Hey, hey, you, just, you have a cold, and you just go home, take some Motrin, that's what the military would do, and you'll be good. And you're like, you know, three weeks later, a month later, a year later, you're like, I think I'm dying. That cold must have really gotten bad. I don't know what happened. Right? But I don't want to be too harsh. Agreed? So when it comes to theology, guess What? You, you, if a doctrine is harsh, it's harsh. Let me make it very clear. Just ask this question Which is more harsh? Think of it. Okay, everybody ready? Which is more harsh? God chooses some for salvation, or God created a world in which He knew the majority of people who ever lived on that planet will burn forever in eternity? Which one's more harsh? Number two. So that leads some people to get rid of what? Eternal punishment. You see where this leads? I don't like that doctrine. Does anybody like that doctrine? I hate that doctrine. Oh, I'm not supposed to say that? I do. I don't like it. Harshness is not the way you determine truth. Okay? In fact, truth has a tendency to be what? Harsh. Okay? Most of the time. Especially if it's a truth you don't. Like. All right, so the uh Amardian view was named after a French theologian. I'll give you his name Moses Amarat. A M Y R A U T. Moses Amarat. That's the way I'm going to say his last name. If I'm saying it incorrect, he can call me and tell me. Obviously, he can't. Uh, uh, okay, obviously, you know Moses. Okay. A-M-Y-R-A-U-T. A-M-Y-R-A-U-T, Amorat, is how I'm going to say it. And does anybody know when he lived? No, he was dead by then. Uh, 1569 to 1664. You're close. You're in the 1600s, that's good. Alright? Now it's associated with Calvinism because it retains a, a particular element by acknowledging God's distinguishing grace in the election of individuals. So they they it, it wants to be associated with Calvinism by saying, well, God, God's grace is shown up in electing individuals. So they kind of acknowledge some kind of an election and God's grace being involved in it. So therefore it's associated with Calvinism in that way. Does that make sense? Okay, everybody say amen? All right, all right good. All right, just say it, even if it doesn't make sense, all right? The logic of the Emer- Emerald... I always want to say Emerald Dillon. I don't know what I want to say. Emeraldians, however, places divine election after the decree to provide an atonement. So this gets into which issue? The order of decrees. The order of decrees, which I, I, we've already studied before. I'm not going to go into all of it again. This puts it after the atonement concept. All right. Um, they place divine election after the decree to provide an atonement. Now, you've got to put your thinking caps on here. Everybody got your thinking caps on? All right, everybody ready? Okay, let's see who gets confused first. All right, here we go. All right, all right, and it's okay if you get confused. All right, here we go. This makes the atonement universal in nature, and the application of the atonement particular in nature through divine election. Now, just make sure we understand this. When we refer to the atonement, what's make sure everybody understand? What's the difference between universal atonement and particular atonement? Who can explain to me the difference between a universal atonement and particular atonement? Okay, say it again. Okay, not exact, you're close. Okay, the universal atonement is that Christ died for who? Well, universal. Everyone. Everyone. However, his death did not do what? Did not save them or did not atone for them. Or if it atoned for them, it only made atonement available to everyone, but it did not actually atone for them in a meaningful way. Like, like he, made, he did the atonement But you don't get the atonement unless you choose it. Right? That's called a universal atonement. That's probably what most of you believe or probably have believed to some level. All right? That's universal atonement. What's particular atonement? Particular atonement, it's not that it's uh, it's only... it, It was only... Designed, he only atoned for the sins of those whom he had elected. That he elected some and then atoned for those whom he elected. They put election after the atonement because the atonement was universal and then he applies the atonement in a particular way. That's why they put the decree after the atonement. Does that make sense? Are you sure? I know this is what everyone, everyone in all the churches you know, this is what they're talking about today, right? Okay, right? I'll read it the way it's described. All right, you ready? This makes the atonement universal and nature and the application of the atonement particular in nature through divine election. All right, let, me, let me try this again. Okay, so, just before you get caught up in all this, make sure we understand this. So, universal atonement says what? Christ died for everyone. Right? Christ died for everyone. And when it says everyone, it doesn't mean everyone like all different kinds of men of different races. No, Every single human being Christ died for. He atoned for their sins. Their sins have been completely paid for. Their sins have been completely gone, except for which sin? Unbelief, which then makes no sense, because how could he atone for all the sins if he didn't atone for the sin of unbelief? If he atoned for all sins of all people, then all people should be saved. But they're like, no, 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 no. He atoned for your sins, but you've got to come get it. Right? you got to come get you to. You've got to accept it. If you don't accept it, it doesn't count. So you're like, wait a minute. So Jesus died for everybody's sins, and he won't give you that atonement unless you ask for it? And I'm like, see, God's a gentleman. I don't know if that's a gentleman, right? Okay, like, hey, there's people in that house burning. Unless they call, unless they ask me for help, I'm just going to let them burn, okay? Like, I that's kind of a weird concept, yes? But that's universal atonement. And again, that's what 99.9% of all your Christian friends believe in. If you question a universal atonement, you'll be immediately viewed as a heretic, and they'll think you are lost your mind, because they have no concept of church history, right? They have no concept of church history. Particular atonement says what? Think of it. Christ elects before the foundations of the world. He foreknows and he elects those whom he's going to save and he plans for an atonement for those very specific people. The atonement only atones for the sins of those whom he had elected. Does everybody get that? Emeraldian, Emeraldism says what? The atonement was universal. Election is now to apply that universal atonement to some. Therefore, making the atonement in theory universal, but in application particular. Now, you're saying, I know what you're thinking. What in the world? Who? Why? I, I, because when you start talking to people like this, they get angry. They're like, I don't care about all of that nonsense. That's just all. What is all of that stuff? Here's the difference. They cared to figure this stuff out where we don't care. Which bothers me. Like, in some ways, why do we not care? Because we're like, ah, it's too complicated. I don't care. Jesus died for someone. Right? Like, it doesn't work that way. This is important. All right? So what would this do to Calvinism? This view would be referred to as what? Come on. Anybody can tell me. Come on. No. Come on. Come on. When you talk to Cal, when you, when you bring up Calvinists, uh, well, uh, are you a five-pointer or a four-pointer? Emerald would be what kind? Four points. There we go. Four point. And when they say points, what points are we referring to? The tulip, right? Okay, right? Everybody got that? And so this would be this would be a rejection of which point? Limited atonement. Very good. Now you're catching on. Alright, this would reject or give up the view of limited atonement in favor of what? A universal atonement. It's it's limited in its application I know, I know. Now listen, I agree. The distinction here seems absolutely foolish. I understand it, but the, the we have to give that choice to everybody. But 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 we have to we, yeah yeah, th- yeah this but see this just tries to make it sound nicer, right? No 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 no. I believe that Christ died for everybody. Okay, good. You're good to go. Yeah, but I only believe the elect are going to get it. See, it's like it's kind of like an underhanded way of trying to say, see, we're not so harsh. We're not so harsh. We're not so hard. It's, it's, it's. I, th- I believe it's foolish. I do believe it's foolish. But if you're going to study theology and church history, you got to know these things. You got to know that because you'll he- listen to someone talk, and you'll be like, wait, what are you talking? What? Oh, I know what you are. You're Emerald Dean, okay? And they'll be like, how dare you call me names, okay? But right? people don't like when you point out where their theology is, right? You're a Pelagian. I'm not a Pelagian. Well, you just gave me Pelagianism, so I don't, I'm sorry. I don't care about those names. You don't have to care about the name. Yeah, You know what I'm referring to. You know what I'm referring to. So people get upset when that happens, but it's like, no, we've got to, we've got to put your theology in some kind of, we got to classify it so that we can figure out what to do. Like you got to classify it, right? Like you may not like big medical terms but you're glad your doctor classifies your disease so that they know, can diagnose it and then hopefully come up with a way to cure it, right? They don't say, well, I don't want to use any big medical terms, so uh, you've got sickness. You've got sickness. What kind of sickness? And we just call it sickness because we don't like all of these big names. Okay. Now, you've got to classify it, right? You've got to classify it because once you classify it, then you can kind of figure out what to do, all right? What else is it known? What what is this also known as? I love this name. You ready? This is also known as hypothetical redemptionism. <laughs> That's so funny. Hypothetical redemptionism? What is that? It's kind of hypothetical. It's hypothetical. Right? Although Emeraldism, Deionism, they, they changed the, the name now here, be uh, be a recognized, may be a recognizable form of Calvinism because it retains the principle of particularism in election, it is not necessarily a good form of Calvinism. According to B.B. Warfield, it is logically inconsistent and therefore unstable form of Calvinism for for another More important reason, it turns away from a substitutionary atonement, which is as precious to the Calvinists as particularism. So they reject it, and it's considered wrong. All right, everybody got that? Oh man, we got time for one more. All right. So, emerald deism. What do they do? See if you can see if you could. Now, if you're out talking to people, and you're like, "What did you talk about in church?" We talked about emerald deism, and they're like, "What in the world?" And they're like, "Well, what is emerald deism?" Tell me. (laughs) Confused? <laughs> That's pretty good. I would say compromising Calvinist. They're not confused. They know exactly what they're doing. Okay, the, they're doing it not to be harsh. Okay, they're they're being a little deceptive, and I? I okay, okay. less harsh Calvinists, right? They they don't want to harsh your vibe, man. Okay, they, they don't, all right. Come on, explain it to me. Go. And how do they make it universal? How do they make the atonement universal? Yeah. Of election yeah. after. Yeah. So God chooses to, to atone for everyone. So now it's universal. But then he particularly applies it only to the elect. So he did die for everyone, but he only applies it to the elect. And you see why that would be less offensive? Because... The, the non-Calvinists would say, well, Jesus died for everyone, but who gets it? Only those who choose to get it. The only difference was we would be saying the reason they get it is because God elected, and they would say the reason they got it is because they chose. So now the, the issue would only come to who, who chose what. But it doesn't, say, when you say limited atonement, it sends like people start burning buildings down and lose their minds. So you don't have to use that term anymore. So that sounds good. It's still very deceptive. But you can play that game when you meet someone who doesn't know anything about theology. You can kind of play the game. It's almost like a debate technique. Right? Okay. Okay. Or, wh- what I had to do. What I had to do. Right? I'm kicked out of the Bible Institute. You're done. You're Calvinist. Get out. Can't have it. Okay. Okay. The only way you can come back is to say that God elects according to foreknowledge. Okay. Really, that's that's all I got to say. You don't even know what you're talking about. You don't even know what you're talking about. But they didn't mean that. What did they mean? God elects by looking through time, by foreseen faith. Obviously, God elects according to foreknowledge because He foreknows everything. So, like, a, like a, But I'm like, okay, whoo, you got me. Okay, Whoa, you're so smart. Okay, I'm like, I-, I can agree to it. I mean, it was so, it was so foolish. Like. You're the pastor, and you don't even understand the doctrine you're condemning. It's like that's you know how embarrassing that is. Like I shouldn't have been the one figuring it out. I'm supposed to be the dumb one. You're supposed to be the knowledgeable one. It's like whatever. Okay, you got me. Woo! All right. So in some ways, this is the same thing. Does that make sense? What and what you wanted to say is like, look, pastor. You don't even know what you're talking about. But I had already had the meeting trying to explain that he didn't know what he was talking about, which got me in trouble in the first place. So that he didn't want to learn, learn about it. He didn't want to read a book about it because he had already decided it was evil and so wouldn't have anything to do with it. All right, what's the next one? We do one more. <clears throat> one more. Let's go with Enfra. Enfra, Lapsarian, Infralapsarian. Isn't that just fun to say? Infralapsarian. Infralapsarian. Just walk around your house all week saying infralapsarian. Infralapsarian. Okay. It does. <clears throat> I've been infected with infralapsarianism. Okay. All right. What's infralapsarian? Does anybody know? comes from a Latin phrase, infra, meaning subsequent to or below. And lapis, lapsus means fall. This pertains to the placement of divine election in the order of decrees with respect to the fall. Infralapsarian deals with the order of decrees with respect to what? The fall. In case of infralapsarianism, where do they place it? Say that again. After the fall. They place it after the fall. Infralapsarianism recognizes that election has to do specifically with salvation. It maintains that the principle of particularism, in the sense of distinguishing grace, belongs to the sphere of God's plan of redemption. Therefore, infralapsarian places election at the head of those decrees that look to salvation and subsequent to the decrees of creation and the fall. So in other words, when they think of election, they, and, and th- they basically separate the decrees. You have the decrees of creation and the fall, and then you have the decrees of salvation. Does that make sense? And they put the decree of salvation where? Subsequent to the fall. Does that make sense? After the fall. Okay. Would not be an eternity past, exactly. Do I? What happened after the fall? Well, that's where that's where it seems to lead. Let's see how they. Well, we'll see how them flesh it out a little bit. But you can immediately see why you would immediately go. Wait, 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 wait. I got a problem here, right? like Now, I'm not saying that, that that you need to hold to those problems. I'm saying that immediately you should at least catch it enough to go. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So, God did not. So. God like, created everything and then everything went wrong and they're like, oh, I need some new decrees because now oh, I've got to save these people, right? That, you see the problem with that? Okay, all right. Now let's see how they, they explain this. I'm going to try to at least finish part of this, right? Everybody ready? Okay. So, oh, it, it, could, it could mess with all kinds of things if we're understanding it correctly, right? I just, remember, I like to walk you through it. I like to get you thinking about it. I don't like to just give you answers, right? Okay, right. Infralapsarianism recognizes that election has to do specifically with salvation. It maintains that the principle of particularism and the sense of distinguishing grace belongs to the sphere of God's plan of redemption. Therefore, infralapsarians place election at the head of those decrees that look to salvation and subsequent to the decrees of creation and fall. In the order of thought, election... Falls subsequent to the decrees of creation and the fall because these refer to all men alike, since all men are certainly created and all men certainly fall. Likewise, election falls prior to the decrees of redemption and its application because it has, it is certain that all men are not redeemed and all men are not saved. So it places it before the decree of redemption but after the decree of the fall. Does that make sense? The infralapsarian view is that of historic Calvinism, the heart of Reformed theology. According to Warfield, this is the only view that is self-consistent and consistent with the facts of Scripture. John Calvin said in the final edition of his Institutes, and I quote, no one who wishes to be thought religious dares simply deny predestination by which God adopts some to the hope of life and sentence others to eternal death. But our opponents, especially those who make foreknowledge its cause and and envelope it in numerous petty objections, we indeed place both doctrines in God, but we say that subjecting one to the other is absurd. Now that doesn't really help us with infralapsarianism, so I don't know why they give us that quote. All right. Here, so we, we just have to try to figure this out. I would, remember, these are the, in the order of decrees, okay? Now, please understand this, the order of decrees. Now, question, when do all the decrees take place? Do what? Before creation. All right, so, just, just you gotta, I know this is, gets crazy, but just try to think this through. So we're in eternity, all right? God's decreeing things. For us to understand it, we try to place it in some kind of order. So, the infralapsarian is actually saying, but John did a good job of saying, wait a minute, I have an objection, is that in the order of decrees, God decreed what first? Creation. Now, I know right there, some people go crazy, but the fall decreed. He knew it was going to happen. And then that well Emperor Lapsarian, would then he would then start the decree of what salvation, salvation. so that they still happens before the fall actually occurs but it happens in eternity after the decree of the fall now you're really trying to distinguish things like in a, a way that to me makes to me there's no value in doing this right because like I'm like wait a minute so I've got to try to figure out which one god decreed first now i understand that there is some Implications in it theologically, but practically, I know this. I, I, this is what I will always say. God decreed everything when in eternity past. Can I precisely figure out the order? I, I, I don't think we can. I'm going to argue we can't. Now, I know immediately reform people are going like, how dare you say that? You're not reformed enough. Okay, I know. And I don't baptize babies either. Okay, all right, got it. But I, I just think that, that that just becomes insane. Does that make sense? Like, how am I going to figure that out? So now what am I trying to use to figure it out? A logical progression. I'm trying to figure out which way makes the most sense logically. Well, if I put that decree before this... Well, then this creates this idea of the atonement. You see, emeraldism, you see why, where they worry about where they put the decree, and it can create the idea that the atonement is universal. That's all based off simply where God decreed things in eternity past. That's insane to me. I waited here to to bring up the absurdity of it. Because I know when you're thinking, we're thinking of decrees and lines of, okay, so the event happens, then God decrees it. No, all of this is about the decrees happening before anything was even created. So how can that order be that dramatic and how it changes everything? Not only that, are we really sure that's how it worked? God definitely decreed everything that comes to pass, but could it, and I know I'm getting ready to possibly step into heresy, Couldn't those decrees have existed as long as God has existed? And then, then how do you place order in something that's known from eternity? Like you're saying, so there was never a time that God, he obviously always knew so he knew it, and then he waited and said, okay, uh, okay it's uh, now, I don't know how you tell time in eternity, okay? but you tell time, and it's like, oh, it's time for decree number one. Decree number one is creation. Someone write this down in the order of decrees. I'm going to wait five minutes. Create, or uh, Decree number two, the fall. I'm going to so wait a couple of five minutes. Like, like, that doesn't seem to make any sense to me. All of this is important because it shows you all of the attempts to try to figure out how, why did this happen and how did this happen. So to talk about reprobation, we have to talk about the decrees. But what I'm trying to now, what i have tried to bring you to the conclusion is realize, wait a minute, some of these arguments about the decrees is talking literally about what came first in eternity. That kind of gets crazy. Does everyone agree? All right. Everybody got that? All right. So, we'll have to stop right there. All right, we'll just stop. And then you can ask questions after. All right, let's pray. Lord, God, we come before you this afternoon. Lord, not an easy subject, but these are issues that the church has debated for 2,000 years. We can either be ignorant of them, act like they don't matter, or we can try to understand why so much time and attention was given to trying to figure out these decrees and I think as the more we study, we'll realize it happens because there are questions in regards to salvation and why some people aren't saved that, they, that there's an attempt to try to understand your decrees from a human perspective. Help us just try to understand what you tell us in your word and accept it whether we understand it or not. Help that be our attitude as we work through the rest of this uh, study in church history and understand the doctrine of reprobation and whether we should believe it or reject it. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,